Knock, and he will open the door. Vanish, and he will make you shine like the sun. Fall, and he will raise you to the heavens. Become nothing, and he will turn you into everything. That is this week's great poetry from the Persian poet Rumi. Welcome to the show, everyone. We are releasing this episode on the 26th of September, 2022. And on the day of this publishing this episode. It is the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the new year for the that the Jewish people recognize. A big part of Rosh Hashanah is sounding the shofars, bringing in the new year. And this is a tradition that goes back thousands of years. Those of you who read the Bible, I'm sure that you've seen the words trumpet all throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul says, The trumpet shall sound. Do you think that he's referring to the trumpet that we know with the three valves and the cylinders and the tubing? No. He's actually referring to a shofar. To commemorate this first day of Rosh Hashanah, I want to play for you an interview that I recorded five years ago, uh, excuse me, six years ago, in 2016, in the early days of this podcast. And it features a fellow by the name of Jeremy Montague. Now, I've just learned that Mr. Montague passed away in 2020. Note from his family on his website, it is with great sadness that we're sharing the news of Jeremy's death. He died comfortably in his sleep, surrounded by family. He lived a wonderfully full life, having had three careers, a loving marriage, three children, ten grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. He had no regrets and was ready to go. Thank you all for your friendship to him over the years. So he uh, was born in... 27 and died in 2020, so he was 93 years old, uh, lived a very full life. Now, I'm mentioning this because Mr. Montague's website, just a terrific resource that I think that you all would like. Uh, He has a lot of articles, information about the historical use of many instruments, of which is the trumpet and the shofar, and Mr. Montague is also the author of a book titled The Shofar, Its History and Use. Now, I'm going to warn you, if you're thinking that you want to go out and buy this, it is not cheap. The Kindle version is $92. The hardcover version is $86.75. Be advised. But I do have some links for you. The link to purchase the book is trumpetdynamics.live forward slash shofar book trumpetdynamics.live forward slash shofar book so it's not exactly an impulse buy you have to really mean business if you're going to go out and purchase that book but if you're looking for some resources and just a website that quite frankly looks to be very interesting and I haven't visited this website in six years since I interviewed Mr. Montague But if you want to check it out, it's trumpetdynamics.live forward slash Montague, and that's spelled M-O-N-T-A-G-U. There's no E at the end. It's M-O-N-T-A-G-U, trumpetdynamics.live slash Montague. 
that's going to take you right to his website. And I'm telling you, he's got a lot of fascinating information. He's got pictures, uh, books. Um, I'm just going to, I'm just browsing it real quick. He's got um, Indian, Tibetan, Sri Lankan, and Burmese shams, oboes and mouth organs, horns from the Mangabetu and other Congo tribes, uh, lutes and lyres from China, Sumatra, Kenya, Uganda, the Congo border, Morocco. Uh, just he has uh, it's quite quite an impressive collection of downloads, articles. So check it out. You're going to learn some things checking this website out. Now let me explain to you what you're going to hear. On the when I published this episode in 2016, I actually played my own shofar. I actually played my own shofar just to uh, play the the three main calls that are used in modern Jewish liturgy. The three shofar blasts are called tekiah, shevarim, and teruah. So those are the calls that you'll hear at the very beginning, and then we jump right into the interview with. Jeremy Montague. So enjoy it. Let's start at the beginning. Where did the shofar uh, have its origin, and when did it first become to be? used as a, not necessarily an instrument, but a call or a, a tool to rally the troops, so to speak. Can you take us to the very beginning? Well, the, the first reference comes in the book of Exodus, uh, immediately before the giving of the Ten Commandments, the end of chapter 19, beginning of chapter 20, when uh, people, were, uh, everyone was gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, and the sound of the trumpet waxed louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered with a voice. And um, I'm using the authorized version translation there, because the trumpet was the shofar. And uh, it was that ringing out from heaven that makes it so important to the Jewish people and to the rituals of Rosh Hashanah and of Yom Kippur and so on. Uh, in fact, uh, in the Bible, Rosh Hashanah never has that name. Its main uh, name is Yom Teruah, the day of blowing, the day of blowing of trumpets. And uh, the other name is Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance, of remembering. Uh, oh, in other words, of remembering one's sins. This is what it's uh, used for in Rosh Hashanah, to uh, call us uh, to remember our sins, to repent for them, to make amends for them. And then at Yom Kippur, at the end of the service, a single call uh, gives us hope that we may be forgiven. And then finally, uh, Yom Kippur is followed by the festival of Sukkot, the tabernacles, and the last day of Sukkot, uh, the, uh, Hoshana Rabbah, uh, 
the great Hoshanot, and the Hoshanot are hymns of intercession for mercy and so on, and then the shofar is blown again for the last time in the ritual cycle to remind us that the gates of repentance are slowly swinging shut, and this is our last possible opportunity to pray for forgiveness for that year. I suppose it's it's difficult to uh, know, but I'd like to ask you. Uh, you mentioned the shofar was blown in Exodus 19, but who actually blew the shofar? Or can you describe uh, that, that uh, scene? It, it sounded from heaven. Okay. Uh, it, it was not blown by human agency. It came from heaven, whether it was God or an angel or what, we don't know, it's not nothing you said, but it sounded from heaven. And in tradition, that horn that sounded then was the left horn of the, um, of the ram that Abraham slaughtered instead of Isaac. It had been taken up into heaven and was used for, um, for the giving of the Ten Commandments because that, when God spoke, it was the Ten Commandments that he gave. And the right horn is still kept up there and one day it will be blown again mm. because in uh, both our religions, uh, Christians and Jews, uh, we, we have the idea of, of, of a last trumpet blast, the last trump, whatever you like to call it. Mm. And so, but that's tradition, and uh, uh, there are many traditions like that in, in the Jewish religion. You don't necessarily have to believe that detail, but the first sound of the shofar was not made by man, it came from heaven, and that is what's important. So the, so the tradition is that it was uh, an angel, uh, maybe God himself blew the uh, the shofar from the ram at the that 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 Abraham used instead of his son Isaac. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that that is fascinating. And uh, it's because the call came from heaven. As I say, we don't speculate whether it was an angel or God. It came from from the heavens. Mm. Uh, when one blows the shofar. On Rosh Hashanah, one is transmitting the feeling of that original call, so that although then it's me blowing or, or whoever else it may be, one is transmitting the call from the heaven. I'd like to talk a little bit about the use of the shofar, and this is when the uh, when actual men blew it, and I'm referring specifically to. Uh, of course, the great story from the walls of Jericho that fell at the... The English translations always say trumpet, but uh, it's the shofar. It's the shofar. And, and then the, the second one that I'm, that I'm thinking of, and I'm, there's more obviously, but the two that I, that I always think of is that and then the one with Gideon, and he has that small army of 300, and uh, with the use of the shofar as well as uh, some other, uh, you know, kitchen utensils, for lack of a better word, they uh, caused the, the the Midianite army to flee. So, can you can you tell us a little bit about how the the shofar came into uh, that use when it was used uh, in the time of the walls of Jericho? The thing is that the shofar. Is, uh, is a horn, a horn of an animal, traditionally a ram, it can be a goat, it can be uh, wild goats, antelopes, and so on. The one thing it cannot be is a cow, we'll come back to that. Uh, a Jericho, uh, it is specifically uh, the horn of a ram, 
Israelites marched round the city day after day and so on. And uh, finally, uh, they were told finally to blow the shofars, seven of them with seven priests and so on. That was a signal to the people of Israel to make a noise, ruah, uh, which is similar to our word row, a noise, and then the wall fell flat. So that whether it was the sound of the shofar or whether it was the, the noise that the Israelites made of both together, uh, there's nothing to tell us. But uh, it was the shofar that was the signal and was the emblem. And uh, again, it, it was done on God's specific instructions to Joshua. Do you know when the shofar first began to be used in, in that context? Like, obviously, it's a very prominent story at the walls of Jericho, but when did the shofar f first start to be used as maybe a, a means of, uh, of rallying the troops? Uh, we don't know. Okay. Uh, there is no reference to the shofar mm. uh, between uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the two statements, uh, one in Numbers, one in uh, Leviticus, uh, that, that it was a day of blowing, a day of remembrance. There's no reference to the shofar in the Bible, in the Pentateuch at all, mm -hmm. until, until in the next book we get to Joshua. So presumably, uh, you know what a horn is, it's used for all sorts of purposes. It's used as a war trumpet, it's used as an alarm, it's used for signaling of all sorts and so on. So whether the shofar as an instrument existed before the giving of the Ten Commandments or when it came into use afterwards, we simply do not know because we are not told. Uh, my guess would be that, um, sure, uh, the Israelites needed a trumpet. They had the silver trumpets, which were used only by the priests, whereas the shofar could be used by everybody. Mm. And uh, even though it was used by the priests at Jericho, why? Did the priests use it in Jericho instead of the silver trumpets? We're not told. We don't know, but it's because the shofar has all these connotations of uh, a voice from heaven. That, that presumably is why, again, it was used in Jericho, because it has a magic to it and so on. Can you speak a little bit about uh, the use of the shofar beyond Jericho and the story with Gideon, and oh, maybe not, it, I guess, the Bible itself or the Old Testament. Gideon, sure. Uh, Gideon, of course, each one of his 300 troops had a shofar, and they also had what we would call a dark lantern, uh, something that uh, is lit but is invisible. They blew the shofar, they smashed the lanterns, uh, the, the pottery, so there was a blaze of light a blaze of sound, and the enemy just ran away. So there's, uh, again, there is something from uh, um, more than mortal about it. But uh, shofar was used for all sorts of purposes. Uh, it was used, for instance, uh, to announce the, the Sabbath. Uh, people in those days uh, didn't have clocks or watches. Some they would go to bed uh, uh, when it was dark and so on. But the Sabbath has to begin at a specific time. And therefore, there was a, a, an official shofar blower. We know where he stood when the, uh, Herod's temple was there because we have a stone that yeah. says this is the place of the trumpeter. Really? Uh, really? We know where he stood. He stood there and he blew 
several, a series of calls, once to warn people Sabbath was coming, uh, second time to shut the shops and so on, uh, third time uh, put away all your tools and things like that, and then after uh, enough time to cook a small fish or a loaf of bread, he blew again and the Sabbath started. So, so that was another important use. Uh, the shofar has been used for weddings, for funerals, for uh, all sorts of jollifications, and as I say, as a signal, as a warning, and so on, from that time right up to the present day. Do you remember the days of the uh, Russian oppression of the Jews back in the, uh, in the 1950s, 60s, and so on? I blew one of mine once into the, um, the microphone, you know, the sort of doorbell, of the Russian embassy uh, for one occasion when uh, a petition was being handed in and so on. It's used for all sorts of purposes and principally, of course, for Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah, there's a whole series of calls. Uh, they're not laid down in the Bible, but in the Talmud, we are told to blow a line of calls three times for each line and so on. And nowadays, uh, customers grown up fairly recently to blow a hundred calls during that day. Can we talk a little bit about the three different calls we have? Takia, Shevarim, and Teruah. Is there uh, uh, any particular story behind these calls? Uh, Takia simply means a call. Uh, Teruah is an alarm. Uh, Shevarim, the triple call, uh, seems to be Talmudic in origin. Uh, they discuss in great detail what the calls were, what they should be, and so on. They don't describe them very usefully, but nevertheless, they talk about them. And eventually, it's laid down that because we're not certain whether we should blow Shivarim or Teruah, we blow them both. And so, the first line of calls is Takia, Shivarim, Teruah, mm -hmm. and Takia, because you always uh, precede and end with a Takia. Yes. And then the second line of calls is Takia Shivarim Takia. And the third line is Takia Teruah Takia. Mm. And uh, so those are the lines. But the actual sounds of the calls differ with each blower. I, I, I've heard many other shofar blowers because I've, I've met many of them when we talk about them. Uh, and we shall show each other the way we blow and so on. And I never heard two exactly the same. <laughs> the differences are quite small, but uh, differences are there. But we all blow the same calls, but not the same sounds. Do you see what I mean by the difference? Absolutely. Well, yeah, any, any musician can attest to that. Uh, you can play... You can have 10 people play one song and have 11 different variations of it. Exactly. But you said earlier in this interview, um, the horn of any animal can be used as a shofar with the exception of a bull. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, basically, you can use the horn of any kosher animal. Kosher. That's to say, uh, any animal that Jews can eat. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, an animal that chews the cud and has cloven hoofs. So that covers sheep, uh, goats, wild goats, ibex and things like that, antelopes, 
and things like that and so on. Uh, it must be naturally hollow, so you can't hollow out a deer horn, for instance, although a deer is also kosher. Uh, the one exception is all members of the cow family, and this is because while Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting all the detailed Ten Commandments, 40 days, 40 nights he spent up there, and the people below were getting worried, and they reverted to worshipping a pagan god, an Egyptian god, a golden calf. And because of that, the, uh, all members of the cow family are forbidden. Because it would be disrespectful uh, to God and the commandments to use the horn of an animal that was uh, used to return to paganism and particularly returned to paganism while he was actually giving Moses the Ten Commandments. It's, it's fascinating to hear that uh, story that, like, I'm a, I grew up in a Christian household, but I, I heard that story in Sunday school, you know, and to hear that story in the context of, of uh, a way that the Jewish people still observe that particular story, it's fascinating for me. Yeah, we observe uh, so many of our stories. Yeah. Bible's full of stories, Talmud's full of lovely stories, uh, including some about the shofar. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is fascinating to listen to, but I'm sure that people listening would want to know more. And you have written, I guess, what is one of the authoritative books on the shofar. I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Well, it, it, it's the only book of such detail and such size about the shofar, read a lot of articles and so on, and pick up a lot of bits of information on the web and so on. But uh, this book, I included everything I knew, everything I could discover. And after all, remember, I've been blowing the shofar since the 1960s, uh, and I've been working with other shofar blowers and studying it and so on in that time. Uh, it, uh, the book also covers the typology of the shofar because there are many uh, different um, animals, the, the, the horns have appeared in different ways in different parts of the world and so on, and also different communities. I talked about the number of calls and so on. We all blow um, the, the, um, the first main block of calls that I was describing earlier, uh, we all blow in three sections of the service, the one covering kingship, the one covering um, uh, remembrances, and one covering the shofar. Uh, but the number of calls and then the placement of other calls in the service varies enormously from one congregation to another. Um, and, for instance, at the end of a group of calls, we, I, I, speak, I say we, the Ashkenazim, mm -hmm. blow a tekir gadola, a great tekir, yes, which yes. is simply longer uh, than the ordinary tekir. The Sephardim don't. They blow a teruah gadola. There's such differences between communities, and yet we're all allied, we're all alike, basically. Uh, the, the, the Talmudic Talmudically specified calls, we all blow. And we all blow them in, in much the same place between the reading of the law on, uh, in, the, in the morning service and the additional service, the Musaf, which is much longer. Uh, can, that's, can, where, that's where the first block comes. Can you give us the title of the book? 
Yeah, The Shofar. The Shofar. Okay. I think we can remember that. It's published, <laughs> by, it's published by Roman and Littlefield. It okay. came out last year. And um, it's a bookshop stock it and Amazon stocks it, of course, mm. like they do everything else, uh, both print and, um, uh, and electronic. Yeah. Well, but it, I, it's expensive, and I'm sorry about that. There's nothing I can do to stop that. It is a bit. It is a bit expensive. So if you want to know more, then show your dedication to it by buying a book. Yeah, let's just say right. that. Oh, look for it in the library. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Montague, this is uh, enlightening for me uh, personally, but um, I really appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge, and I really wish you all the best. Thank you. Great pleasure. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit TrumpetDynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we'll be in your earballs soon.